I don't know if you know this, but summertime is a time for summer camps, and Sweathead is going to run its third summer camp this July to August over four weeks. It's called the C Word Awakening. From July 18 to August 10, we're going to focus on the four C's consumer truth, cultural truth, competitive truth, and company truth in the middle bit, the center bit, another C. And then we're going to give you a taste of comms planning as well. You're going to hear from Tess Isopoulos from Widen and Kennedy, Simone Pratt from Saatchi and Saatchi, Dylan Viner from Triptych, Jenny Chang, cultural strategist, Nick Susie from dot dot dash, TBWA, Seth Gaffney from Preacher, Christina Pansaloni from Irico, Maria Van Buskirk from Media by Mother, Shane Rennie from Widen and Kennedy, and me, Mark Pollard from Sweathead. For more details about how to join us in the Sweathead Strategy Summer Camp, go to sweathead.com. Your C word awakening awaits. What's up? I'm on to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. Today I have Dave Collins from the Monkees. Dave Collins is a strategy director at one of Australia's, I'd say, most loved and and very effective and envied and slightly feared, especially in their early days, but probably also now agencies. Dave, I'm going straight into it. You spent a year in New York, so tell us the story. It was a year, but it felt like a lot longer in my life. It sort of has a disproportionate amount of time that I think about it. And it had been a long time coming, you know, I think like a lot of Australians have that dream of putting on their backpack and going overseas. And pretty much from day dot, as soon as I got into advertising, that was kind of the dream. I wanted to move to New York and everyone knew me as the guy who was kind of, yep, that's Dave. He's the guy who wants to move there. And so... Yeah, when I finally got there, it was a long time coming and it was great. It sort of delivered on everything I wanted to. And then COVID happened and I went back to Australia. So it was a long time coming and one year doesn't sound like a long time, but I felt like I still got a good experience from it and still sort of ticked off some of those boxes that I'd always wanting to be ticked, I guess. I mean, in your biography, it says that that you're a Cleminger grad, right? So you came in at a very young age and a very fancy place. Cleminger BBDO in Australia does very good work, as it does in New Zealand as well. And people knew you as the guy who would going to go to New York, right? So what's all that about? Because there's a certain sense of self-awareness mixed with confidence, and that's not an easy move to make. And Australians are a little bit naive with these things. We think because we can put on a backpack and travel around the world for a couple of dollars a day in some places, which is literally decades of our cultural upbringing, that we can also do that and then also move into a job that we're happy with in advertising. So I'm mostly trying to get at your ego here in a curious way, not a, not a judgmental way. It didn't seem like a far-fetched dream. I guess because it is a pretty well-trodden path, it's a common experience that a lot of people have done. So that first agency experience I had, which was Cleminger, this big place, there was either a lot of people who had come back from New York already or were kind of thinking about it or it was a kind of a dream at some point. So I guess when you're surrounded by that a little bit, it rubs off on you. Interestingly enough, I guess in some companies or some industries, if you were to tell people that you've got one eye on moving to another country, they might hold it against you because it's kind of like, well, is this person really bought into the dream here? But fortunately, at least the people I was surrounded with were always really supportive about those ambitions and in fact, kind of actively helping me to kind of get there. So in terms of ego, like, yes, I was putting it out there in the world, but it it didn't feel like something that was too outrageous. It felt like it was pretty congruent with what a lot of people in the industry were thinking anyway. It's true. And what I think that talks to is like, we are the average of the ideas that we grow up around. And Australians, 
you know, you can put adjectives in front of that, like white Australian males, whatever you want to do. But like we grew up around like the Errol Flynn, who's not from Australia, is from New Zealand, right? But like there's like a larrikin adventurer who could go to the ends of the earth. And because he's charismatic and can tell good jokes and is sometimes sarcastic, he'll survive. Do you identify with that? Yeah, a little bit. I think for people who know me, they wouldn't necessarily describe me as a larrikin. But I think there is an innate sense of adventure that's part of the Australian psyche. And so it's hard not to kind of have a little bit of that in you and capture that spirit. But I know that there is a privilege involved. But at the same time, I'd like I look at my dad and he didn't really go overseas at all during his life. We went on a trip to Japan sort of five years ago, and that was the first time he'd been overseas, I think, in sort of 20, 25 years. So it is a bit of a generational thing as well. I think our generation feels a lot more sort of mobile, and I feel sort of very grateful to have been able to do it, even for a short amount of time. What did that one year teach you? You know, from a work perspective, I think that Australia does punch above its weight. I think that I had built up New York as this thing in my mind that it was going to be a big, really scary place where people were much smarter than me. Yes, some of those things are a little bit true, but for the most part, like we do a pretty good job and that was really good. But I think the other thing was just super humbling in terms of how insignificant you are as a small, tiny human in a big place. I felt like in America and then in New York, even more so, you just reminded about, holy shit, like this is a big bloody world. No one cares. Like you can be kind of Killed over on the sidewalk and a thousand people walk past you in a second. You're a pixel here. You're a pixel here. Like it's the whole big fish, small pond, small fish, big pond thing. I mean, you're literally a pixel in New York and New York doesn't care. It exists to chew, chew the world, chew people up and then spit them out. Are you bruised from your experience? I mean, for context, it was a long time coming. As I said, like I've been working towards moving over there and sort of did a little trip. I interviewed at as many places as I could. I got coffees with as many people as I could and and got a job out of that and then basically worked there a year. And then when COVID hit, the agency took a bit of a turn and was forced to make a lot of people redundant. And almost on a dime, I had to really sort of make a decision as to whether I was going to stay and sort of tough it out and try and find another job or come back to Australia, basically. I essentially made that choice within 24 hours. I think I was made redundant on a Monday morning and 24 hours later, I was on a plane back to Australia. And part of that, I think, was because there was just so much uncertainty, but also as a foreigner in that country where your livelihood and your job is kind of linked to your visa and your permission to be in that country. If you lose your job, then you're at risk of kind of being an illegal immigrant. So it was a pretty swift and hasty move, but I don't feel particularly bruised right now. I feel like now that two or three years has gone by, I still look back upon that time really fondly and I don't hold anything against the company. You know, I think that was just the nature of the beast at that time. And I guess you're left wondering a little bit whether you should have stayed and whether what would have happened if I'd followed that path. But I think the kind of the flip side of being made redundant is that choice is taken out of your hands a little bit. So there's not regret there. Like that decision was kind of made for me. I had to look forward. I sort of summed up the situation and decided to come back home. And I feel like I've kind of jumped into an even better job and a job that I'm probably happier in and and really fulfilled. So yeah, that's kind of the silver. You're undoubtedly in one of the top 
50 agencies of the past two decades right now. That's pretty amazing. And I do feel like one of the challenges with corporate America and advertising in general is like you stick it out, but what do you get closer to? Like I would argue you get closer to like bureaucracy and emptiness. And it's weird because the work doesn't get better the more you hang around unless you set up your own company. There's like a real corporate drag on advertising here. And I'm only saying this because I'm talking to you. I wouldn't want to talk like this all the time because it's a drag, but it's kind of the truth. It's very hard to do good, interesting work, like the kind of work that you would expect to get from all of your creative teams at the Monkees every single day, or let's say once a week in a New York agency, you get that once a year, I'll give you a high five, literally. Like that's the ratio. And it's not because the people are bad, it's because it's so corporate and it's so conservative. And so then if you're going to come here as an Aussie who wants to conquer the world, you've got to work out what you're here for. And so for me, these people split into two and there's the red-eyed Aussie who came here to do great work at all costs and they tend to flame out. And then there's the person who's like, I don't know, kind of curious about walking around Park Slope every now and then in Brooklyn and go to some parties. Cool. You're going to survive a little bit. But it's a weird place and Australians who do well at advertising and then come here in their late 20s and early 30s, which is very young, they think they're going to be the one to change it. You won't be the one to change it. All I'm actually trying to say is, you know, if you want to be doing good advertising, sometimes you just got to go where the good advertising happens and you're in one of the best agencies in the world. Yeah, that definitely rings true. It did feel like there were more layers of bureaucracy over there that were getting in the way at times. And, you know, I I took for granted a bit in Australia. You'd just have you and your strategy boss in Melbourne and then you'd have a direct line to the CMO at the company here and, you know, you could ring them up and do a tissue session pretty quickly. Like it, it didn't feel like there was as many hoops to jump through. Yeah, I do enjoy that. But at the same time, the scale is amazing in terms of a very small campaign in New York could be five times as of our biggest one here. The flip side of what I just said is you could work as hard as you work right now in a bigger place in your own company and you will have exponentially uh, like better situations. That's definitely true. You know, as as someone who used to work 80 hours a week or more sometimes in, in Sydney, Australia, which is small. So how long have the monkeys been around for? I think we celebrated our 20th anniversary pretty soon, or we did recently. So they've been around for 20 years. And at that time, it was largely holding companies. And then there were companies like BMF who were at that 20 years ago, they would have been independent and crushing it. One of the best agencies in the world, I think. And there were little pockets of um, beautiful independent companies, agencies. And then the monkeys kicked off. The host was around at that time as well, independent still, I think. And the monkeys kind of scared people, I think, a little bit in that way where everyone was envious of them for believing in themselves like that. So what was the story? As far as I know, yeah, it was Greeny, Justin and Scott. And I think they almost pitched themselves more as a film sort of not just advertising, but a bit of everything. And um, they came with really good reputations in the industry already and went on a bit of a tear and have sort of been on a tear ever since. The big kind of headline is then at some point they got bought out by Accenture and Accenture Song and are no longer an independent. But two out of three of those guys, the original guys, are still really heavily involved in the company. My story is more about the Melbourne office, which started about five years ago, which is a kind of similar story. You know, you've got Maka, Ant Keo, and Michael Derapa, who kind of 
form their reputations in Clemenger in the world of beer and similar kind of story went off to kind of start their own little thing and that became the Monkey's Melbourne office. So You're mentioning names who are, they're still relatively young really, I think, as in not that much older than me, but like they've been around some really big brands, really brave marketing people. Clemenger B video in Melbourne is like, I love the 4 and 20 magic salad plate. I don't know if you know it, it's one of my favorite campaigns. I show it all the time. I was showing it today. I was showing it today. And then I cringe at myself, but I like, I really love it. Clemenger B video in, in Melbourne is, I mean, surely you look at the past 30 plus years, like got to be top 10, got to be top 10. What were some of their famous campaigns that you grew up around? Assuming you grew up around uh, Melbourne. I did. And it's kind of corny to say, but like I was a bit of an ad nerd even from a really young age. And the ads that really, really stuck with me were always Clemenger ads. And I probably didn't know it at the time, you know, but now having known the industry and and done the history, I I realized that there's actually a connective tissue between a lot of them. Probably it's hard to not talk about Clemenger without talking about Carlton Draft. That was, for me, the kind of pinnacle of advertising. So the big ad, beer chase, flash beer, there was kind of a Explain the big ad. Bud had the what's up ad and then Clemenger released like the big ad. So the big ad is, as it says, one of the biggest, most uh, epic kind of pieces of advertising out there. It's got Oh Fortuna, sort of this amazing orchestral song. And I, I don't know how many extras. I think they shot it in New Zealand. And I think it was still to this day, that's kind of the ad that people remember. And I don't know if people are watching it on YouTube or how they're kind of still you know, referencing it. You know what? I need to watch this because it was like the biggest ad from Australia at the time. And it's literally an army of people in New Zealand, which is physically just so beautiful. And they're just singing this song to the sound of O Fortuna, which was also a very famous rave song around 1993. There was a remix that we all grew up around. And they're just like, this is a, what do they say? What are the lyrics? This is a big ad, right? This is a big ad. Yeah, it's very meta, right? It's postmodernist in a way that would really annoy uh, Ian Pritchard. I don't know if you know him, but I'm writing his foreword and he hates postmodernism. So I'm writing his foreword for his new book, his third book, and I'm going to be very postmodernist. That was a classic ad. What else did you admire as an ad nerd growing up? I think a lot of the 4 and 20 work always really hit home. That was really good. In sort of more recent times, I think Meet Graham for the TAC was really good. Is that betting? Stuff, gambling, stuff, TAC. Uh, no, TAC is the Traffic Accident Commission. Oh, I thought that was like a gambling thing because it seems like most of the advertising in Australia now is about gambling. That is true. It's occupying an unfair share of um, wallet for sure. BCF as well, which is a sort of boating, camping and fishing, which we now have as a client in the Monkeys as well. They were great. It's classic Ant Keo jingle. So what drew you to the monkeys? Yeah, I think as you said, like it was kind of that reputation. It was an agency that I'd always kind of admired from afar and had always been for me sort of put in the box of it being a Sydney agency. You know, they didn't have a Melbourne office. So for most of my early career, I kind of knew about the monkeys and knew they were good and and saw the lamb ad that they did every year and thought it was great, but had never kind of entertained it as a prospect of of working there. The world changed a bit when they opened the Melbourne office and I came back to Melbourne and was actually an option. And suddenly here were the guys 
who had had all those successes at Clemenger, who I'd kind of had the football cards of, you know, these were some of my heroes of advertising. So honestly, it was kind of at the top of the list in terms of places that I wanted to work. So it happened pretty organically. I reached out, got a coffee and then got a job. It has actually delivered on all fronts as well. You know, sometimes they say not to meet your heroes, but it has been a really nice experience to kind of meet these people who I had admired and held up on a bit of a pedestal and realize, yeah, they're great people. They do good work. And I haven't really contemplated leaving ever since. Ah, smart person. Hey, pull your mind out of those time sheets for a second and take a look at the Sweathead website. We have three membership levels, starter mode, flight mode, and beast mode. They give you access to a variety of strategy masterclasses, conferences, accelerators, and online learning, some of which has been known to make people cry because they like it, they like it, they feel seen. Make the most of your mind this year or any year and visit www.sweathead.com today. Now back to the interview. Do, 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 do. Very keen to talk to you about some of the work that you've been doing there. And you've got a couple of case studies that you're going to talk us through. Let's go through MacPack. I hadn't heard of the brand before. Could you tell us what the brand is and then explain to us the work that you did for them? It's been a really good one, MacPack, because I think we kind of had a bit of a false start. And not often do you get a second chance to kind of right your wrongs a little bit with the work. And I feel like we did that and we kind of managed to hit a home run the second time round. But yeah, MacPack is a New Zealand brand. They specialize in outdoor gear. So I think they were started in the 70s out of a garage. How do you spell it? M-A-C-P-A-C? Yep, M-A-C-P-A-C. Yeah, they have that kind of classic origin story of someone starting in the backyard, building their first backpack, which was basically used for mountain explorers to kind of take to the most dangerous summits in the world. And then over time, they grew and have created jackets and pants and all manner of things and tents and all that sort of stuff. So they're a bit like a North Face or there's another brand, Kathmandu, sort of in Australia and New Zealand that are in a similar space. And yeah, I think the outdoors category is really interesting, right? Because it's moved from being quite a specialist niche category into quite a mainstream kind of consumer goods space. So in Melbourne, the joke is that as soon as it hits winter, everyone puts on their black puffer jackets, even though you're not probably reaching the Arctic temperatures that some of these puffer jackets are built for. It's sort of a bit of a fashion statement. And as a result, I think a lot of the advertising has sort of trended towards a similar place. Like some brands have gone specifically down that kind of streetwear style. But a lot of them have just been around sort of getting out there and being in the outdoors and what it does to your mental health and that kind of thing. But where MacPack kind of wanted to build a bit of difference in them was they aren't just a disposable jacket, like they are the goods, you know, they're built really tough. It's a legitimate kind of technical brand and they wanted to kind of build that back into the brand a bit. So they came to us sort of like every brand wanting to grow and get more customers and more penetration and all that kind of thing. And we came up with a platform which was really good. It was called Weather Anything, which was all about kind of the durability and the toughness of the gear. W-E-A or W-H-E? W-E-A. We wanted it to have that double meaning of, yes, you can go out in any weather and take it on. And also any sort of personal challenge that you're facing in your life, you can also weather that as well. And yeah, we did our first campaign and it was a pretty small one. It probably didn't go completely to plan in terms of getting it out there in the world. And it just kind of made a drop in the ocean. It didn't sort of make any ripples, 
not sure how many people saw it. What did you do? How much money was behind it if you're able to share that? I'm assuming you can because this was part of a case study entry. I'm not sure how much money was spent. I'm sort of one of the advantages of being in strategy is I'm slightly removed from some of those production headaches that people have. But as you get older, you need to not keep saying that you need to be closer to the money. That's how you prolong a strategy career. That is true. I think it was just relatively small budget. They come from a place of not having done huge integrated campaigns. They did a lot of really great content and a lot of sort of seasonal sales-based messaging and that kind of thing and had relied on physical availability a lot. So this was kind of maybe their first foray into a bigger TV ad and probably just didn't have the money at that time to support it. And as a result, I think it was a pretty sort of basic shoot. And creatively, I think we were happy with the concept, but we probably didn't execute it as best we could. And then again, probably didn't have a huge media budget behind it either. But fortunately, I think everyone saw the value in the platform enough to kind of give it another crack. So we kind of spent this next six to 12 months sort of going through that process again, knowing that we still had a really good platform and that we believed in that. We just needed another execution, another idea. And we managed to do that. And that ad went live a few months ago. This one, it's called A Bit Precarious, and it basically lived up to the platform. Well, what's the platform to you? Because that word wasn't used very much in Australia at all when I was there. And then I moved to America and people were using the word platform. I was like, what are you talking about? Platform to me in America was something that people in politics or in beauty pageants use. They're like, what's your platform? Australians didn't really use it. We're like, what's that? It's, you know, we're cynical, a cynical bunch of people. So what is a platform to you? I reckon it's relatively new to me as well. And I'm not sure I was using that term five years ago, but kind of understood the concept, but probably it hadn't landed. Yeah, platform to me is sort of an enduring idea, for lack of a better word. It can be a tagline or the platform can be a slightly broader idea that then there's a tagline that sits under. Yeah, so hard to define this stuff, isn't it? Because I was like, a platform is typically a thing you stand on for a little bit of time. And it's usually made of wood. We've all been in meetings or in night before the pitch situations where all of a sudden the tagline becomes the campaign idea becomes the platform and then there's what hang on brand essence brand essence and brand platform it's super confusing I, to me the way through it is just like choose your two or three pieces of jargon define them and then move on because it's all about the creative work anyway exactly yeah i think it's too easy to get caught up in all that kind of bullshit but I just hadn't heard an Australian use brand platform recently. And I was like, oh, okay. Is it more of an American thing, do you think? It is to me. I remember flying from, where was I going? Chicago to Philadelphia my first year here at Saatchi and Saatchi. And a guy leans over and he goes, I'm on the plane. And he goes, hey, man, what's your platform? <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? Uh, by the way, it's the only time I've ever heard that question. He goes, you know, what are you into? What are you doing here? And I was like... I don't know what you're talking about, but I understood it through politics and beauty pageants because they literally asked the question, you know, what's your platform? Yeah, yeah. Interesting. I've never even sort of thought outside of advertising, yeah, what that word means in different contexts. The other confusing thing is when you then talk to tech companies and then they have a platform, which is literally their product. All right. Tell us the story. Keep going. The brief this time around was if we are going to be the toughest, most durable outdoor wear brand, then how can we best bring that to life? And I think we'd spend a bit of time probably focusing on, you know, within that platform of whether anything more the emotional side about what are those challenges that you're taking on 
a bit like Nike, but we then went back to almost basic advertising 101, the sort of Dave Trott philosophy of show, don't tell. How can we actually just show people that our product is really durable and tough? So we did sort of a product demonstration in a way, but just in a really fun, Kiwi sort of charming way. So for people who have seen the ad or might be watching it after this, it basically shows a bunch of people hanging off a cliff by a MacPack jacket. And where you would typically expect the MacPack jacket to maybe rip, it's holding really strong. So it's made of the right stuff. I think it was just a probably a, a good lesson in perseverance, like when you know that you're onto a, a kind of cool thought to keep going down that path. And fortunately, we had a client who trusted us and let us do that as well. Yeah, it's funny to hear you, hear you talk because just for the seven and a half people who are in Sydney, Melbourne or New Zealand, New Zealand's a country, Sydney and Melbourne, they're cities, who like coming from Sydney, I like Melbourne and I like New Zealand, but People in New Zealand, they tend to not like Australia or, or Sydney and people in Melbourne don't like Sydney. I think we should just squash it. It's all good. Super Cheap Auto is a pretty famous auto, what, what would you call it? Like an auto retailer brand as well. And you've worked on them and they've won a lot of awards. Can you take us through some of the work that you've done as a company? For super cheap auto as well, SUPA. They're a big auto retailer. So they sell, you know, a lot of car care stuff and parts and oil and all that kind of thing. And, you know, have a huge footprint as well. If you drive around the outer suburbs of um, most of the capital cities of Australia, it's, it won't be long before you kind of hit a super cheap auto at some point. They are an interesting one as well in that, like a lot of retail brands, they do a lot of price and promotions and catalogs and that kind of thing and hadn't necessarily invested a lot of time in brand. And then if you look at the category and the way brand advertising had been in that category, it was pretty bogan. It was pretty male. It was pretty old school. You explain bogan. It's a proxy for redneck or sort of someone who's maybe... uh, The definition is like Bali and Indonesia is really beautiful. And if you visit it, And then you come back and you're like, I met Australians there and they were kind of loud and violent. Uh, It's like, well, they could have been the heads of some advertising agencies and they could have been the people that you're describing. I don't use that word very often, but Bogan is like a chav in in the UK. It's like a redneck. Rednecks sort of have a Confederate slavery vibe as well, which Bogans don't have. Yeah, I don't think it's as bad. And I think some people are really proudly Bogan as well in Australia and people that I'm friends with. So it doesn't have as negative a connotation, but I guess in an advertising context, it's typically brought to life with that, you know, slightly overweight guy wearing a singlet who, who's drinking beer. That's kind of the mental image that it conjures. Why throw a punch with the other hand? Exactly. And I think with the car industry, I think a lot of the imagery that comes to mind is sort of hotted up cars and you know sponsoring the v8 supercars which is a bit like the nascar in america so i think there was a lot of that baggage attached to super cheap and don't get me wrong like you don't want to lose some of that because those people are like super passionate about cars and and a huge source of volume because they're the ones who are going to be spending a bit more money on you know doing up their car and making it look really nice and all that kind of stuff and personalizing it but i think our challenge was to widen the aperture a bit and talk to a much wider audience and and show that no matter who you are, you know, Super Cheap's got something for you. And so I think very early days in our conversations with the client, they came up with this pretty profound quote, which was that not everyone is a car lover, but everyone loves their car. And the sentiment of that is that you don't have to be a rev head. You don't need to be the person who's putting new rims on your car to still really love your car and still care about it. So 
that was kind of the bit of the North Star which informed the creative and the campaign, the sort of the brand campaign was all about making it super. You know, whoever you are, whatever you drive, you can make your car a bit more super. So it's been in market for a while and it seems to be connecting with people. And for me, like it was one of those campaigns where it actually really resonated with me because I drive a pretty basic kind of Volkswagen and no one would describe me as a huge car head, but I still take a lot of pride in it and I still want to care for it and protect my investment. So I think that that thought has connected with quite a few people. It's nice and simple, but also because you're working with some of the best creatives in the country, I'm sure the way it was brought to life was incredible. As you're talking, I'm reminiscing about the early to mid 1990s where the trading post was a thing and where I, I used to go to the Holden Gemini. $300, $400, could I buy that? Could not afford that kind of car. I could buy at least two of them now. But yeah, back in the day, well, I, I would say in general, like uh, male Australian culture is very much about the car in a way that New York is not, not really, but there are obviously parts of the US that would be. I'm just trying to translate to people in different places who might or might not be into cars. But the Gemini was the car that I was taught to really appreciate? Was there a car when you were younger that you were taught to appreciate through the trading post or something that's trading post adjacent? I think Holden in general just always felt, yeah, it did feel like something that you kind of worshipped a little bit. I don't have any true car love stories, but the Holden Commodore, there'd always be a few of those around. And I think as well, because the V8 supercars is a big part of Australian kind of sporting culture, that sort of Holden versus Ford rivalry. Always felt like it had a disproportionate impact on culture a bit. It's true. It's true. You're in your early 30s. You're in, you know, definitely one of the best agencies in Australia and definitely one of the best agencies in the world. And I feel that Australia, we're not aware of how young we are in this industry. So at your age, you probably feel pretty old. You probably feel like you should be a CSO or running a thing or something, 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 something. What are you going to do through the rest of your 30s? Like, How are you going to progress in a way that you feel is in keeping with your own ambition? I've always tried not to think too far ahead, but still have a rough plan. And right now I'm just in a spot where I am really enjoying things. And I don't want to think too far ahead a little bit, but I feel like I'm just in this sweet spot right now where I'm at a certain level of seniority where people respect my opinion and people want me to be part of conversations. And I'm working with some really top tier talent around me. And I feel like I just want to capitalize on it and make the best work I possibly can. And I'm really sort of bored into it. I'm a little bit scared about then what the next chapter holds after that and when this sort of good run will come to a close. But I guess in sort of five years, I see myself potentially being a head of strategy and running a department of some kind. But as it stands right now, I'm kind of happy just being a little bit in that middle ground where I'm senior enough to kind of have agency and influence and impact, but not so senior that I'm kind of burdened by all the responsibilities of running a team and the realities have come with that as well. I just find it such an interesting career stage. It's hard to talk about because you're obviously you and people around that phase are full of confidence full of uh, agency not not the advertising agency but like full of agency you you know that you can impact things and then there's the rest of your life knowing that potentially this industry it doesn't keep people around for very long and then you're working with some incredible talent and how long does that last like i just find it's a really interesting phase that hits a lot of people in smaller markets especially australia new zealand and probably like brazil and argentina it hits people young really young in a way that you are like, yeah, I'm ready. 
but you're actually really young and that doesn't get discussed very often because like, okay, so what if you do take that next step right now? Someone like you and then you're like a CSO at your age in Australia, you want to be a CSO or CEO or just running the whole thing. It's like, okay, and then what's going to happen? Because you can do that for five years, you'll be 36, 37, like, and then what? I find it really, really interesting. Everything's sped up in Australia in, in this industry. Am I making sense? Yeah, it, make, it makes sense. And I've seen some of your talk about getting old in advertising. And maybe I'm sort of got my head in the sand a little bit. Like I almost don't want to think about it too much. It's a little bit like thinking about death and, and dying, you know, like there's a little bit of me that knows that at some point there might be an expiration date. And I look around and suddenly... You know, I was one of the younger people and suddenly I'm now one of the older people. But I feel like I'm just in this little sweet spot, as I said right now, and I almost don't want to upset that by thinking too much about what the future holds. But what has been pleasing, I think, is looking at the leadership team of the Monkeys in Melbourne and they all have kind of grown into this career and seem happy and thriving and, you know, and I, I look at them as a bit of an inspiration that there is a career there for me and I can just kind of follow their path a bit. I find it fascinating because like around a little bit older than you, first of all, I had kids, I had a three-year-old and a one-year-old and then we decided to move countries and made it more difficult for ourselves. And I know that Australian arrogance because I, I felt it, I had it and uh, it's beautiful because it pushes you to do things. and But the thing is, like, it doesn't necessarily travel well with you if you go overseas to do things. And then if you go overseas and then you go back, you've got to deal with that story. Like, how do I make sense of that? Did I fail? Did I succeed? Did I just learn, right? And then you still have to wake up every day and write the next creative brief and look yourself in the mirror. But uh, what I will say is, like, people in your situation who are in some of the best agencies in the world who still feel restless, like, you'll have these little phases in your life where you'll almost accidentally... You won't think this at the time. Almost accidentally do really good work because the strategists, they only matter if the creative team's really good. And the top strategists in the world are with the top creatives in the world. And I see briefs, I see case studies. And it's like, yeah, it's because you're working with some of those creatives. And I think that it needs to be a stronger narrative around the strategist who's working with great creatives just being, you know, like not, not kowtowing. Like I don't like inferiority complexes or anything like that, but just being like, you know what? Maybe this can be a little bit of a carefree phase of my life from around great people and we do great work together and that's that. 100%. Yeah, look, I'm the first one to acknowledge that the creatives here make my job a hell of a lot easier and they make everyone's job easier. If the brief isn't good and the strategy isn't good, but the creative's still good, it, it makes up for everyone's failings. So I acknowledge that. And I think my philosophy has always been just be as useful as you possibly can to those creative teams, basically, because you want to be the strategist that they want to work with, you know, the one that they're looking forward to getting your brief. So I think it's been a nice kind of recalibration a bit coming to an agency like the monkeys which is so creatively focused that it's made me have to sharpen up my creative skills and language and even the way i talk about creative has completely changed since i started working here and i think hopefully that's being reflected in kind of the work that i'm putting out as well i feel like the whole point around uh, you changing the way you talk about creative is a whole other podcast episode but i appreciate you being here today if people want to find you on the internet where you're most active I've got a little bit of a LinkedIn sort of thing going on. So, yeah, you can probably find me at Dave Collins on LinkedIn. Little bit of a LinkedIn thing going on. What does that mean? 
Well, I'm sort of one of those uh, slightly just pokes my head in every now and again and post something just to remind people that I exist, but um, not wanting to give into it completely because I feel like that world of LinkedIn is slightly scary and uh, I'm not sure I want to be completely on there all my life. What do you mean it's scary? I think there's a lot of people on LinkedIn who... I don't even know if they know what they're saying. They're just constantly congratulating each other. <laughs> and look, I like the positivity of LinkedIn. That is one of the redeeming features, I think. Of being humbled all the time because good things happen to you. I feel so humbled. And also, everyone's very excited about everything that's going to happen. Very excited, very humbled, very excited in a very humbled way. Yeah, just let it rip. Say your points of view and move on. Who cares? Yeah, I probably need to do a bit more of that. All right, Dave. Well, thank you so much for telling us a little bit about the monkeys today and if anyone at the monkeys is listening love your work keep it up i do feel parochial in these interviews because unlike dave i've spent more than one year in this country and uh, i think australians are okay at this stuff and new zealanders as well we're okay at advertising that was not a that came out weird dave can you accept what i just said (laughs) that was a compliment it's good i like what you said and yeah, curious to see what happens in the rest of your 30s because you, you know this, you're going to navigate these little phases and they're going to sneak up on you. I hope you get to have like a little golden period where you get to experience working with some of the best people doing some of the best work of your life and that's all there really is at some point. I'm looking forward to it. I'm sort of excited and I am going in there a little bit blind, but I'm optimistic. Thank you, Dave. Appreciate you being here on Sweathead today. Thank you, Mark. Take care. Peace. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sweathead. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend, subscribe to our newsletter, find us on Instagram or LinkedIn at Sweathead. And if you're interested in finding out about our strategy, memberships, company training or books, visit sweathead.com. Whoop, whoop.